We've got some competition out there, sounds like. It's great. All right, if you're turning your Bibles to Acts 15 and stand for the Scripture reading, I will read beginning in verse 19. Acts 15, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders whom the whole church with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren, who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles' greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls, It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. And I'll pray. God, I thank you again for your word and for these things that you have recorded and revealed for us, God, um, that we might profit from them, that we might walk with you in truth and be those who worship you in spirit and truth. And I pray, God, that you would just illumine our hearts and minds to what you have written and that we would receive these things, God, with open hearts and allow you to to just ingrain these things in us, God, for your glory, and that we would walk, Lord, with you um, to your pleasure and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we started um, chapter 15 here in Acts, and, and I just really spend some time on what the whole problem is that they're having to deal with in this chapter. They, and that is that as people among the Gentile population have come to faith in Christ, and Paul has been preaching to them to be saved, to receive eternal life, all you need to do is place your faith in Jesus for that eternal life. There is nothing that you need to do. It is a gift that is to be received, and it is received only by faith. Very clear, simple teaching. Well, there are a number of Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, from the sect of the Pharisees, who didn't accept that. And so they went after Paul and said, you now need to be circumcised. Or in other words, now you need to keep the Mosaic law. And that you cannot, they were very clear on this, you cannot be saved unless you believe in Jesus and keep the law. Well, that is a Jesus plus theology. And so Paul was absolutely adamantly against that. It is never Jesus plus anything. It is simply faith in Christ. 
And so they couldn't settle it among themselves, and so somebody came up with the idea, let's go back to Jerusalem and get them to comment on this. And I observed, I don't think they went to Jerusalem because they saw the Jerusalem church as having authority over the Antioch church or any other church. They went to the Jerusalem church for two reasons. One, that's where most of the apostles were. And the apostles did have some authority over these churches at this time. But most importantly, because these false teachers had come out of Jerusalem. And so no better place to get this thing settled and disavowed, if it's in fact not true, than to have the Jerusalem church say, we never sent these people. And that's exactly what they say in their letter. We didn't send them. These people are not from us. We do not endorse what they're saying. So that was settled once and for all. But the big thing here was that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ, Christ alone, faith alone, and there is nothing that can ever be added to that. We very subtly add to that. And, and so it's not, not just in our salvation, but also in how we walk with Christ afterwards. We oftentimes, we may be very clear that we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, and yet when it comes to living the Christian life, say there's now a bunch of things that you need to do. Well, that's why this chapter and this letter that's written by the Jerusalem Council is again so important. Three things that this church council says have to happen in the lives of people who have received Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. And these three things are not three things to be abstained from for the sake of salvation. That's already been settled. So what are they about? Not only are they to abstain from them in verse 20, abstain from things contaminated by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. But in verse 28, the writer here, James, says these are essentials. So that raises the question, essential for what? They are not essential for salvation. Then what are they essential for? Well, because of verse 21, going back there, it says, they, they, this is the conclusion they came to in their council. Why are we putting these three things on these people? And then we have an explanation, verse 21, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him. Speaking, there are Jews in every city, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So now, here's the thing. The majority opinion of why these things are essential and to be abstained from, the majority opinion is because Jewish people will take offense if Gentiles do these things. I have a problem with that. Now, I'm not saying that as believers we should just ignore the scruples of other people. We have entire chapters in the New Testament about the importance of the stronger brother taking heed to the conscience of the weaker brother. Whole chapters on this in the New Testament, particularly in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. So that is a very, very important thing. But here's the thing. If, these, if it is essential for us to abstain from these things because Jews might be present then by that rationale, they are not essential if there are no Jews present. 
And what are these things that we are to abstain from? Well, one of them is, first thing he mentions here is idolatry. So if there are no Jews present, then go ahead with your idolatry. That didn't make sense. The second thing is fornication or sexual immorality. So there's no Jews present, so fornication, sexual immorality is not a problem. And then things strangled and from blood. No Jews present, so take your glass of blood and drink it. No problem. You see, that doesn't work. And so surely we, we know that we have to take consideration for the scruples of Jewish believers as well as the weaker Christian in general. But this is bigger than that, folks, a lot bigger. These three things, I believe, transcend the Mosaic Law. They are not rooted in the Mosaic Law. They are rooted in the nature of God and what it means to walk with Him. They are timeless, and they are universal, and they are not limited to the Law of Moses. These are very, very big things. Some things that are not essential for salvation may still be essential for honoring God with your life and not giving offense to your brother. These things are essential to honoring God. They are not means to achieve sanctification, but they are going to be true of a person who is living a sanctified life. So let me state that again. The means for achieving sanctification is the same means for salvation. And that is Jesus Christ saves us and Jesus Christ sanctifies us. He is the Savior and He is the Sanctifier. And He does so as I yield myself to Him in faith. And a life that is yielded to Jesus in faith will be free from these three things. These are, these are things that are indicative of a life set apart, of a life that is sanctified. They are indicators of that, but, but we are not the masters of our salvation. We are not the masters of our sanctification. It is the work of God. But when God's at work and our lives are truly yielded and set apart from Him, to Him, these three things will not be characterizing our lives. Some things are bigger and more important than others. I believe that when a person is in Christ, living from Christ, and living for Christ, everything is spiritual. That there are no unspiritual things. Because if all that you are doing is from Christ then all that you are doing is Christ doing it. And it is therefore spiritual. So there are no unspiritual moments. There are no unspiritual tasks. As long as we are operating from the Spirit of God. So everything that God is the origin of is godly. Everything that the Spirit of God is empowering us for is spiritual. Everything. Wiping off a table, preaching a sermon. As long as the Spirit of God is the source of that activity, it is spiritual. So there is potential for nothing to be unspiritual. Follow me? But that doesn't mean everything is of the same significance. 
even among spiritual activity, which should encompass 100% of what we are about, every thought, every action, all our motives, 100% spiritual, because we are yielded to the Spirit of God and His activity within us. But everything that's 100% spiritual doesn't necessarily carry the same weight, the same significance. I, of the many questions that, that we field every year in Bible school, there are a few that just always come up. And I, I do these chat times at His Hill um, throughout the year. And, um, and I know sometimes the students think I'm really, really smart because I, I'll just stand there and just field the questions. Well, what they don't know is these questions are asked year after year after year. <laughs> and so I'm not that smart. I just know pretty much what's going to be asked. Well, one of the things that's, that, come, that people come around to is why, they've stated in different ways, but why do we get so bent out of shape in the church about certain sins when all are sinners and no one is free of sin? So in other words, why do we even discipline anybody? Why would we even think about church discipline? Because nobody is innocent of sin. Amen. Nobody's innocent of sin. First John says, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. Okay? So what are we doing? Picking and choosing which sins are bigger and the ones that need to be disciplined. Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say all sin is the same. In fact, the Bible... In 1 John chapter 5, we looked at that a while back, says there are some sins which are unto death, and there are other sins which are not unto death. That same passage says all sin is lawlessness. All sin is unrighteousness. But some sins will incur the immediate discipline of God to the point of perhaps even losing your life. Other sins, that won't happen. Now, it's not my business to determine which ones those are. But it is clear from Scripture some sins are bigger sins than others. They are not all the same. In the Old Testament, if you stole something, you had to repay two times, sometimes three times more than what you stole. But if you broke the Sabbath, you were to be executed. See, we would reverse those two things. Break the Sabbath? No, 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 shouldn't do that. And God says, no, break the Sabbath and you will die. Steal, and you have to repay double. Jesus said to Pilate, the one who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Greater and lesser sins. And Jesus being delivered up to Pilate was a greater sin. Jesus said concerning the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, every other sin can be forgiven, but not this sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul spoke about sexual sin, and he said every other sin is outside the body, but sexual sin is against the body. He didn't say it was the greatest of all sins, but he put it in a category by itself. All through Scripture, we see sins being treated differently. All sin has the wages of death. All sin is unrighteousness and lawlessness. But that doesn't mean it's all the same. This is hard, I know, for us to grasp. But in the same way, see, this helps me to understand the doctrine of eternal punishment. 
and why Scripture says that God's going to take the time to judge every sinner with every thought, every motive, every action. Why do that if all sin is the same? He's doing that because it's not all the same, and no two sinners deserve the exact same punishment. And a just God is not going to punish Hitler the same way he'd punish some dear little grandmother who never even heard about Jesus Christ. So hell will have degrees of punishment because God is a just God, and he weighs these things. He judges these things. And heaven will have degrees of reward. Degrees of reward in heaven, degrees of punishment in hell, because he is a just God, and all things are not the same. So these three things are huge, not for salvation and not for acquiring sanctification, but they are essential for walking with God in purity, in uprightness, and in holiness. We cannot claim to be walking in a a life that pleases God and have any of these three things true in our life. So what are they exactly? Again, he restates these, and just to read them again in this summary down in verse 28 and 29, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, we're in agreement, to lay upon you no greater burden than these three essentials. Number one, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols. The Christian can have nothing to do with idolatry. Number two, and from blood, and three, and from things strangled, and I think those two things are together. So this is not actually four prohibitions, but three. Blood and things strangled go together. And then the third thing, and from fornication. Now, I believe these things are such a big deal because I think that Paul, not Paul, James here is saying these denote three areas of what is sacred. Now, again, I believe all life can be spiritual. But in a spiritual life, some things are inherently sacred. They have greater weight, greater importance to them. The sanctity, I believe the three things he's talking about are the sanctity of worship, the sanctity of life, and the sanctity of marriage. These are big things. We've become so secular we've lost a lot of our value for what is sacred. We've become very casual, very flippant, very cavalier in our dealings with things that ought to cause us to tremble. And honestly, of all the sermons that I've given, particularly here in the book of Acts, this one has caused me the most pause. We're talking about sacred things here. Things that have intrinsic worth and weight. And I am all too aware that we are, I can be so comfortable and careless with the holy God 
and what it means to be in a right relationship with him that the sense of the holy and the sacred can often be lost. I'm going to read some thoughts on Tozer in a minute, from Tozer. But before doing that, I just want you to think about these three things. Sanctity of life, sanctity of marriage, sanctity of worship. Abstain from things sacrificed to idols. This has to do not with the food per se. Paul made a big deal throughout several of his letters that it was okay to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. He says, don't ask for conscience sake if you don't know where it came from, but the food itself is not the problem. You'll remember when Paul wrote to the Colossians, he says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why are you, were, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using? So he says, this is not what Paul's talking about. The, and so Paul was hammered on this. He says, I'm not, and see, Paul would affirm these three essentials. He's not undermining what James has said. He says, why are you submitting yourself to decrees such as do not taste, do not handle, do not touch? That's, that's a different thing Paul's talking about. He's not dis- diminishing or dismissing what James has written to all the Gentiles. All Gentiles, all Christians should be in observance of what James wrote. When Jesus spoke to the seven churches in Revelation in chapter 2, two of those churches, Jesus says, I have this against you. And what he had against them was their participation in the pagan, idolatrous worship festivals. He says, you have no, and what he said is that you were eating things sacrificed to idols. But Paul said you could eat those things. So what's, is there a contradiction? I don't think so. I know there's not. I think Paul is talking about the meat itself eaten in the privacy of your home. And what Jesus is talking about is participating in these idolatrous events that are taking place. Cannot do that. And that is what James seems to be talking about. There is idolatry in this world. And there are events where we may not be bowing down to an idol but God has nothing to do with those things. An idol is anything in my heart that I run to for peace and comfort and rather than, rather than God. It is something that causes me fear and panic at the prospect of it being removed from my life. It's what I trust in when there's crisis and problems. It's not necessarily a piece of stone or wood that we bow down to. I'll come back more to the sanctity of worship because this is particularly speaks to that, that we abstain from idolatry. And by the word, way, the, way, the word abstain, it's not a complicated word. It means stop. It means don't do it. It doesn't mean gradually wean yourself from this. These people knew who they were dealing with. Gentiles that had grown up steeped in idolatry. Everywhere they looked, there was sexual immorality. 
This was their world. They step out the door in the morning and they are assaulted with these things. They can't go anywhere in public and not be confronted with these three things. These writers knew that. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're told, abstain. There is no excuse. Abstain. You can live a holy life in a godless world. And we have many examples of that throughout Scripture. Abstain from blood and from things strangled. This goes way before the law of Moses. When Noah came out of the ark, God said to Noah, you can eat from all the plants. Well, that's the way it was before. In the Garden of Eden, God pointed out what they could eat. You can eat from anything that grows in this garden except from the tree in the middle of the garden. All these plants are good for you to eat from. But they didn't eat meat. They didn't eat animals. And then they came out of the ark, and God said to Noah, guess what? Now you can have brisket. Now you can have a good steak. Yay. And so now you can eat meat. So this predates Moses. But there was a condition. You cannot eat blood. So just as God in the garden defined what food is, food is plants. Now, walking out of the ark, God once again defines what food is. And food is plants, and food is meat, but food is not blood. So he isn't saying that, that blood is forbidden as food. He's saying blood isn't food, you see? So a Jew could not eat pork as food, okay? He never said pork wasn't food. He said pork was forbidden food. That is not what God's saying about blood. He's saying blood isn't food. You can't eat it and you can't drink it. And so that is a prohibition that has nothing to do with Moses. And it was on all humanity, and it still is today. All of humanity are to be free from idolatry. And all of humanity should be free from the consumption of blood. Quoting from someone else here, whenever one bleeds an animal killed for meat, he has fulfilled the commandment of Genesis 9 not to eat meat with the blood. So when you go to the HEB and buy your steak, it has been bled. That's not to say it doesn't have any blood in it. But when we, serve, when we kill an animal in order to eat it, it is, it is bled. And there's even when I, I'm a deer hunter, and when I shoot a deer and quarter a deer, I put it on ice for three days to a week, and during the time that it is on ice, it is bleeding. And, I'm, and I will pull out and pour out an ice chest of what looks like just pure blood. It's been bleeding. You hang a carcass of beef in a, in a locker, it is bleeding while it's hanging there. That is not to say that all traces of blood are gone. That wasn't what God was after. He was saying, you don't preserve the blood in order to eat it. And we don't do that. He wasn't saying there can be no blood in the meat. He was saying you should not view that as a, a, a food in and of itself. 
A small amount of blood always remains in meat even after bleeding. Further, cooking meat so that it no longer appears red does not remove the tiny bit of blood that remains. It simply changes its color. To put it more precisely, in Genesis 9, God forbids the intentional eating of blood, either by extracting blood and drinking it, or by intentionally leaving it in the meat slaughtered for consumption. Why? Because the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17.11. The sanctity of life. When we, if we were, and this takes place in, in the occult, in in forms of worship that are focused on demonism and Satanism, they will consume blood. Why? I don't know that they know why they are doing it, but I know the enemy knows why. The life is in the blood. And when a person would just presume and just, where would you get that thought to drink it? That person is saying, life means nothing. It is a profaning of life. It is a profaning of something that is sacred. Now, we've done a pretty good job as evangelicals in the last 45 years of emphasizing the sanctity of life. I think a lot better job than we've done emphasizing the sanctity of marriage, or the sanctity of worship. But the sanctity of life, as important as it is, is only one of three sacred things. And I don't know that any one of these three things should ever minimize the other two. And I wonder if they don't all three stand together. Among the pagans, they did. If we were, could go back in time to the days of Elijah and Elisha and watch those pagan worship services, they would be filled with sexual immorality and the slaughter of innocent lives. The sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and the sanctity of worship were all three being profaned in those pagan services. I don't think that we should separate them as being saying, well, I'm doing a pretty good job because I'm focused on the sanctity of life. And we never give a thought to the sanctity of worship. Never give a thought to the sanctity of marriage. Abstain from fornication. I have a friend that did, his, did some master's work in Jerusalem, living in a dormitory populated by Jewish people. He was one of the only Gentiles in this dormitory. And they were of the Orthodox variety. And sexual immorality was rampant in the dormitory. Orthodox Jews. And he couldn't believe it. And he remembers that one morning he woke up and there was a bang on, his, on the wall, the, the common wall between his dorm room and the next dorm room. And so he went over to the dorm room and opened up the door to see what was going on. And the Orthodox Jewish student that was there said, I just wonder if you can flip the light switch on for me because it's the Sabbath. And, when you, and, this, and on the Sabbath, you can't make anything. You can't create anything. 
And flipping on a light switch is creating an electrical connection which turns on the light. And so you've created something. So he can't even turn on his own light switch. But he's sleeping with his girlfriend. <laughs> Unbelievable. And he goes, why? How? And he asked the guy, how can you justify this lifestyle? It's fornication. And this Orthodox Jew says, show me in the law of Moses where fornication is outlawed. Wow. It's all through the New Testament. But you're pretty hard-pressed to go into the law of Moses and say it's outlawed. So where is James coming from? I think he's coming from Genesis 2.24, where God says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Now, whether it's in the law of Moses or not, we're supposed to understand marriage is sacred. And sexual intimacy is only for marriage. No place else. And I think there was a, that, that, that until the conscience becomes seared, I and mean, I may just be being naive, there is that sense. This is a special, special thing. It is not like other physical things that we do. It is, as Paul says to the Corinthians, in a category by itself. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians on this matter. And he said, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you still more. For you know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain, same word, from sexual immorality. This is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain. Almost out of time. I read an article last week put out by Pew Research. 62% of Catholics, 62% of Catholics have no problem with casual sexual encounters. 54% of mainline Protestants have no problem with, with casual sexual encounters. 36% of evangelical Protestants. So one in three of those who go to evangelical churches say, what is the problem with fornication? And as we might expect among those who claim there is no God, 94% of atheists say there is no problem here. And 95% of agnostics say there's no problem. The sanctity of worship, the sanctity of life, and the sanctity of marriage. Tozer says God is seeking worshipers and he is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth and rightly I believe he says when God says seeking those who worship him in spirit it's not a, cap, it's not a small s but a capital S and he's saying you cannot worship God apart from God it takes the spirit of God to worship God rightly not as Cain, 
who worshipped without atonement, not as the Samaritans who worshipped heretically, Tozer would say, but Jesus is seeking those who will worship him in spirit. It takes the spirit to worship God acceptably. Only the Holy Spirit can enable a fallen man to worship God acceptably. What we do, we must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that includes worship. And in truth, the worshiper must submit to the truth. I cannot worship God acceptably unless I have accepted what God has said about five things, Tozer says. I must accept what God has said about himself. I must accept what God says about his son. I must believe what God says about me. I must believe what, his, what he says about his grace and how great it is. And I must believe what God says about sin. And God says we must abstain from idolatry. We must abstain from anything that profanes the significance of life. And we must abstain from what would defile marriage. To worship acceptably is to be born anew by the Holy Spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit teach us how to worship and enable us to worship. All has the potential of being spiritual rather than carnal. It's either carnal or spiritual. But some things are inherently sacred. And I fear that as the body of Christ, we are in danger of losing the sense of the sacred. Some things are scarily important, if that's the right word. It ought to make us tremble to think that we would treat lightly, treat with contempt, be cavalier about things that God considers holy. And he says life is holy, marriage is holy, and worship is holy. And I would pray, and I am praying, because these are universal truths, not just Christian truths. All of humanity is to live with the sense of the sacred. I'm praying that our nation, before November 3rd, wakes up and remembers what is sacred. Because you cannot vote democratic and uphold the sacred. These three things are all clearly, strongly violated by the Democratic Party's platform. There is no way. And these are not suggestions. As James says, these are essentials. And I don't know how as a nation we can long endure and ignore what God has said is sacred. I'll close with some prayer. Holy God, Thank you that we can come before you in confidence that it is only because of the blood of Jesus Christ that which is holy and sacred that has been shed on our behalf which cleanses us from all unrighteousness purifies 
us as a people for your own possession. Sanctifies us. Secures us. Purchases us. Thank you, Jesus, for what you through your blood have accomplished on our behalf. You've redeemed us and saved us that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray, God, that we would allow you to perform that sanctifying work in us that we would truly, in our hearts as well as in our actions, abstain from all that you call unholy. Have mercy upon this nation, God. We deserve, Lord, your judgment. And I pray that in this last, what seems to be just a, the last hour, the 11th hour, that you would rekindle, reawaken God in those who know you and those who don't. What we should all know, that you are a holy God and you are to be feared. And there are some things that are truly, truly essential because they are sacred. Thank you, God, for your ministry to each of us as we so desperately need. In Christ's name, amen.